How many of you have ever tried to build a campfire? You've ever tried to build a campfire? Really? That's all? I bet you there's a whole lot more. You're just afraid to raise your hand. I remember we were on vacation one time in the mountains, and behind our cabin that we were seeing, a very nice cabin, right behind it was a fire pit, and, and my kids, they wanted to build this fire because we wanted to roast hot dogs and marshmallows. And so I said, okay, kids, just go out into the woods because the fire has died down. Um, not too low, but it was, we had run out of wood, so we need to stoke this flame if we're going to do this thing. And so I sent them out into the woods, and I took the longest. And when I got back, the, all I saw in the fireplace was a bunch of wood and a lot of smoke. And I'm, and I'm asking kids, what happened to the fire? And they said, Dad, I don't get it. But we got the wood, and we put it on the fire, and I think it put the fire out. Well, I could see that you know where there's smoke, there's fire. So I knew that there was some fire, but something was wrong. And I looked at the wood, and I said, kids, here's the problem. Look at the wood that I brought. And this is why I took so long finding my wood. It's because my wood is not as old and uh, soaked with water as yours is. And what's happened is you've gotten the wood that's been rained on and it's not dry. And that's what's on the fire right now. And, you know, honestly, many of us, as we go through life in our Christian walk, we want God to stoke this fire, this passion for Christ in our lives, and we're throwing on the wrong fuel. And we don't even realize it. And we just think, you know, where there's smoke, there must be fire. And we see a lot of smoke. But church, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, truly honest, for some of us, the flames are being put out. The passion for Christ has been dwindling. I can remember, I think it was last year, that uh, we had been invited over at Diego's party over at the Cromies, and we were having a good time, and lots of food, and loved it. There was, and, and Robert w had built this outdoor fire, and Robert just, Robert cooks meat all the time over an open fire. That's how he does it. He doesn't grill. He does it open fire. And when he was all done, and we had eaten the meat, and it was now time to just watch the fire, People wanted, because it was a tradition for them, people wanted to throw the Christmas tree on the, on the campfire. And I looked up, and about 30 feet or so above the, the campfire, the, or the fire that was there, were, was a tree branch, huge tree branch. And I said, guys, you just don't make those flames go too high. And so they took the Christmas tree, they threw it on, and it was starting to burn you know, after the first 10 seconds, and it was, it was starting to build, and all of the sudden, the flames shot 20, 25, almost 30 feet into the, it just ignited. And Robert saw this, and, and I think he grabbed a, a long pole or a stick or something, and he pulled, put it into the, he grabbed it with his hand. Bold, man, I missed that. And he grabs it and he pulls it into the, the center of his, his uh, backyard, and the flames, are the, the flames are just shooting 30 plus feet up into the air. It was totally ignited. Now, if you know anything about how many of you have ever burned a Christmas tree before? Brian, I know you're going to raise your hand. <laughs> oh, my goodness. It's dry, the sap is dry, and it is just prime for being ignited. I want to go through a series entitled Ignited. Because as we move into this new year, 
we want to be able to have this type of walk, this relationship with Christ that is ignited. It is passionate. It's sincere. It's deep. Because you're going to find out that everything that we do as a follower of Jesus Christ starts right here. For some of us, though, we're looking at the smoke. We're assuming if there's a big fire underneath. And maybe for some of you, you need to remove some of that bad wood and really see what's underneath. And for some of you, God's going to throw a Christmas tree on your fire, amen? And it's going to ignite. There's going to be a passion in, in, in your walk with Christ. And as we go through Revelation 2 this morning, that's my prayer. God, ignite, reignite a passion in our souls. And so I've entitled the sermon Reignited. Now the, the series is ignited, but this sermon is reignited. Are you there with me? Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. It says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, this is Jesus. That's why in your Bible it's probably in red. Jesus is dictating this letter to John. The angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men. That you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary and i think at this point if if we could watch jesus as he's dictating this I, I think he would pause for an applause and commend the church of ephesus all of these things are commendable but now follow with me in verse four yet i want you to just highlight or underline or somehow mark that word yet because that is a contrast word we're now moving into something very different we see in the first three verses an awesome commendation yet he says i hold this against you you have forsaken your first love repent excuse me remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent. Now here's the seriousness of this charge. If you do not repent. I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. Which I also hate. He who has a near. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. You'll notice if you were to read all seven of these letters that they all begin in the same way to the angel of the church in Ephesus, Sardis, Pergamum, Laodicea, Philadelphia, whoo, Philadelphia, um, and then what he does is he begins by taking usually two, sometimes one, but usually two characteristics of Christ that John saw in chapter one. And so here in this one, and by the way, in each one begins to him who overcomes. 
Here's my charge. Here's what I'm going to commend you for and here's what I'm going to challenge you to do. And if you overcome, if you do what I say, because here's a key of overcoming in life. If you do this, this is what I'm going to give you. This is going to be your reward. So I don't know about you. I'm looking forward to that day. I'm looking forward to that reward. My mom and my dad, for those of you who don't know, have passed away in the last month. And right now they are receiving their reward in full. I envy them. I mean, I don't want to go be with Jesus today, but I tell you what, I do look forward to it. And the only reason why I don't is because I believe God still has a mission here on earth for me. And that's what Paul said. Convinced of this, I know that I'll remain in the flesh and continue with all of you for your joy and faith. And I believe that God has me here, but I tell you what, I look forward to that day. Well, these letters, they, this particular letter starts off with two characteristics that we see in this vision that John sees in the spirit. It says, while I was in the spirit, this is what he saw. And the two things that he points out to, and you're going to find this with all the letters, the two things that, John, that Jesus emphasizes at the very beginning of every letter has everything to do with what the letter contains. It's the theme. So if we read these two, read these two things that Jesus highlights, this is what the letter's about. This is the danger. This is the theme, the caution, or the promise, depending. It says that he holds in his hands the seven stars, and he walks among the seven lampstands. Now, he tells us in the very beginning, or I should say at the very end of the letter, read with me, the last verse, he says, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So the seven stars are the angels. People have different opinions about what, who these angels are. The Greek word is angelos. It can be translated either angel or messenger. So there are some who would say that these are simply earthly messengers or maybe overseers of the churches. And they get this from Revelation 12 because in Revelation 12, we see a picture of a, John sees a woman and she has 12 what around her head? 12 stars. And those 12 stars represent the 12 tribes or leaders of Israel. And so they assume, well, this is, the, this is the idea that he's bringing in. He's introducing these seven overseers or leaders in, of this city. And you just realize they didn't have denominations back then. They had city churches. That is, churches that they, were, they weren't divided or dissected or separated by denominations. And this is what we believe and this is what we believe. But there was unity there, but they were unified by their city or town. And so the other perspective is that these are truly angels. Now, I'm, I'm not going to get into what's commonly called territorial spirits, if you're familiar with that term. Um, but scripture makes it very clear that there is a hierarchy not only in the demonic realm, Ephesians 6, Daniel 10. Now, if you're not oh, heard of anything teaching, what are you talking about? That sounds weird. Hierarchy in the demonic realm? Okay, just... Daniel 10, Ephesians 6, read it yourself. There's also a hierarchy in the angelic realm. And people would say that these stars are angels because in that very same chapter of Revelation 12, not only does he see the woman, but he sees a red dragon and his tail sweeps a third of the stars out of the sky. You know, did it burn his tail? Yeah, I'm wondering. No, obviously, because these are a third of the angels and you see this imagery in, in, say, chapter 9, verse 1, a fallen angel is talked about there. But these angels are now, they choose to follow Satan, and they now war, in the following verses, against Michael the archangel. 
Did you hear that? Archangel. That means he is higher in rank, authority, than other angels. And they battle against Michael the Archangel, and Satan is cast out of heaven. It says he is hurled to the earth, overcome by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony, the application of the blood of the Lamb to our lives. So here we see, regardless of whether it is uh, human leadership or angelic leadership, and I do believe that angels such as Michael the Archangel, he is the Prince of Israel, angels oversee and minister in geographic areas, okay, and, and, and cities as well. Again, my purpose is we could really dive into an entire sermon on this, but that is not my purpose. All I'm saying is leadership here is significant. And then he says that he also walks among the seven lampstands, and he tells us that the seven lampstands are the churches. Now, what is a lampstand? I'm only going to touch on this quickly because this isn't the point of my sermon, but it does set us up to understand this passage. Lampstands would be, if they're not candles. You see a candle up here, and this is only an imagery, uh, an illustration I'm going to use later. But the lampstand would be something that was filled with oil, and a wick was in the middle of it, and they would light the lamp. And there was a fire then in this land. That's significant. That's what this is really all about. This is the fire of the spirit of God in the church, in the individuals of the churches. And collectively, they are a lampstand. And the caution that we read here is you need to be careful because your lamp, your fire is going out. And if you don't heed my challenge down the road, the fire will go out completely, and your church will be lost. It will be no more. Can I just say this, that the early church, the Ephesians, did heed this word, but down the road, do you think they did? Do you realize where Ephesus is today? It's in Turkey. The church is very small, very persecuted. And when the Muslims came in, they kicked out or killed the Christians. And the wick of that lamp went out. And I can only imagine that at some point, historically, Ephesus failed to follow this word here. And God said, fine, I will fulfill my word. Let's get a little bit of background here before I move on. So we see leadership. We see this flame in the lampstand and I'm going to say this, that leadership, whether you're a leader like myself as a pastor or a, people look up to you as a spiritual leader in the church or you're the head of your home, moms and dads leading your home, anybody who looks up to you, you have a significant influence on them. And if they don't see the passion of Christ in you, why should they be passionate for Christ either? So this is a challenge to all of us, but significantly to leaders this is, this is the danger here. Whenever a church loses its fire, eventually that fire can go out. And historically, however many generations down the road, in Ephesus, it did. It's kind of odd because when you, we look at the, uh, the spiritual influences in Ephesus, it's perhaps, listen to this, it's perhaps the greatest of any city, including Rome. Did you hear that? Including Rome. 
Paul ministered there for three years, longer than any stay that he had. Longer than his stay in Rome, in which he was a prisoner, two times. And he ministered there for those three years. And many people caught up in occultic practices were rescued from that lifestyle, burned their material, came to Christ, and I am sure that there is a passionate move from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. I want to come back to that. Secondly, when Paul was in prison, we read in 1 Timothy chapter 1 that Timothy, this is about your 61, 62, Timothy has been left in, excuse me, left in Ephesus. And we At some point in the mid-60s, Timothy is ministering in Ephesus, and Paul is encouraging him to oversee those churches well. And so Timothy, Paul's disciple, is ministering in Ephesus. Now, tradition also tells us that the very apostle John, who wrote this, by the way, that John ministered there as an overseer apostle, of course, for a very long time. So do you not think that there is a tremendous spiritual deposit into that church, and yet, I hold this against you, you have forsaken your first love. None of us are exempt from this challenge. So I want to give careful ear to what I'm sharing with you this morning. Any, this can happen to any church if they're not careful, any individual if they're not careful. The first thing that he wants to see, and I'm focusing here right now on the problem of Ephesus. It's my number one point. What we see here are three very good things that Paul commends them for. Look at this. He says, number one, you're working hard for the kingdom. Well, you're laboring, and and maybe you're laboring into the wee hours. And Paul, remember, set a great example for them because he wasn't looking to them for financial aid. So he had his own business And he had set up that business in Ephesus for those three years. And I'm sure it prospered. It did well. So he kind of set the pace, working hard. And he even says to, uh, like the Thessalonians in chapter 2, we work day and night. So we didn't have to receive any financial resources from you. And we poured ourselves into you. Being single guys, that is a blessing to be able to do that. But he he set the example. We've worked hard. And we see here in Ephesus, he says, man, you're working hard. And not not just working to support their family, but laboring in the kingdom. He says, the second thing is you've tested people who are false brothers, who are false teachers, false prophets, false apostles. And you have shown them to be untrue. They're not following the faith. These Ephesians had listened to Paul and Timothy and and John, and they, they were theologically grounded. They knew the truth. They got it. Theologically, they had crossed their T's, dotted their I's. And, and it wasn't just theological, but they were very astute in seeing character. I mean, it's a good thing. In Matthew chapter 7, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, concerning the wolves in sheep's clothing, the false teachers, false prophets, you will know them by their what? By their fruit. Character. The Ephesians got this. And they excelled at it. And the third thing he commends them for is they endured hardships. And listen to this. They had endured the hardships and they had not even grown weary. And that's a good thing. I tell you what, some of us and sometimes myself, wow, 
Don't, don't you feel weary sometimes with the hardships and the trials that we go through? And so these are, these are good things. On the surface, so far, so good. At this point, we would be tempted, I want to give that church an A+. Outstanding job, builders of the kingdom, great applause, awesome. And I'm sure that these were legitimate. They weren't just, Jesus was not giving a golf clap here. You, you know what that is, right? Jesus was truly commending them. But you see, there was a real serious root problem that lay, of course, beneath the surface. That was, that's what root problems are. There was a deeper issue here that I need to speak to you about because if you don't listen to what I'm saying, all of this good stuff, it, it, it will mean nothing. What does he say? Here is the problem. Here is the problem in Ephesus. You've forsaken your first love. Wow. You know, many football teams... They've been together for quite a while, and they start off doing well. They might even win a Super Bowl, but within like two years, it's amazing. Some of them just tank, and it's not just because the players. Many times it's because they get a different coach, but you just wonder what is going on, and here's what the coach says. We need to go back to the fundamentals. Hmm. The reason why you're not succeeding is because you, you've, you, you're trying to – learn so many trick plays and memorize the playbook, but you've forgotten the first steps in being a football player. Hello. Good coaches, whether it's football or basketball or baseball, any sport, they will always take their people back to the fundamentals and you never veer from that. And so Jesus is saying, you've forgotten the fundamentals here. You have forsaken, that means turned away and become so preoccupied in doing all of these things that you have neglected and even turned away from your first love. What is that first love? I see it in two different ways here. This is how we can forsake our first love. What is it? Number one, our first love, and, and I would capitalize the F and capitalize the L because that first love is Jesus. It is God himself, the triune God, who at the very first, he says, I require your affections. He says even this, if you would follow me, hate your father and mother. Maybe some of you are doing too well on that one. But, and then it says, hate your brothers and sisters. And some of you are thinking, man, I got that one. But he says, now hate yourself and follow me. And he's not saying hate, but the way, if you were to go back into the Old Testament and study and, and say, Jesus, what are you, are you saying that we got to hate and now love? I don't get this. And the way they use that word love and hate in the Old Testament, for example, with, with Jacob, he, it says that he loved Rachel but hated Leah. No, it's not that he hated Leah, it's that he loved Leah. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, Malachi. It's not that God hated and detested Esau. It's that he loved Esau less. And so he's simply saying, you know what? All of the love relationships that you have in your life, they got to come second place to me. 
And so Jesus makes it clear, Luke 14, check it out. The cost of discipleship, you want to be my disciple? I got to be first place. That's why he told the rich young ruler, he said, you want to follow me? Parenthetically, I got to be first, so here's what I need you to do. Sell everything you have because that's your first love and it's not money. So if you're going to follow me, here's the deal. I got to be first place. And if I'm not first place, I will not be second place. And you cannot follow me. So the rich young ruler walked away because he refused to make Jesus his first love. So when we come to Christ, scripture says, Jesus is our first love. But another way to understand this is when you first came to Christ, there was a love in your heart, not just for Jesus, not just for God and while he's in the spirit and how they, the triune God and how they rescued you and, and ministered to you and healed you, et cetera, et cetera, but your love for one another. That fire, that flame has grown so dim. In fact, you've forsaken forsaken your first love now if you were to look at the early church and some people as they look at the seven letters to the seven churches I don't necessarily agree with this view but I see some truth in it I just haven't climbed aboard it completely but they say that these seven letters represent seven stages in church history and we do know this, that the early church, within a few hundred years, had forsaken its first love. And in part, I think this is how they did it. False teachers started arising. Yeah, they tested those who claimed to be apostles but were not, and you proved them false. And the early church began and the leaders began to hear these strange teachings that were not in accord with the word. And they did what was right, church. They studied the scriptures to see if these things were so. They listened to the apostles to see if these things were so. And they discovered they're not. What do you mean Jesus was a created being? What do you mean that Jesus was adopted as the son at his baptism? But before his baptism, he was not God. He was just a man. What do you mean that Jesus was anointed by the Christ and at that moment he became God? Gnosticism and that even goes so far as to say, you know what? The, the flesh is evil and sinful and the spirit is what's redeemable and good. So it doesn't matter how much you sin in the flesh because that's not the real you. This is called Gnosticism. So you can do whatever you, you can sin whatever you want. You have license. And Gnosticism in the mid-100s flourished. But it started in the church. They had truly forsaken the first love. And so the early church said, they started calling these false doctrines out and they, they did good, church. They, they said, we know we need to get theologically grounded. We need to know what the truth is so that we're not so easily led astray. But they so focused on fighting the enemies of the truth that their love grew cold. And you can see this in their writings. Very few of them focused on this devotional life and, and, and just passionate walk 
with Christ. And they, they began using this term for those who did focus on, they called them the mystics. That's what they called them, the mystics. Well, what do you mean, mystics? I mean, to me, that's derogatory. The, the truth is they were, they were pursuing Jesus in this devotional life that the early church was leaving behind. Why? Because we need to be theo theologically accurate. No, get, don't get me wrong. I love theology. But I have worked with teens enough to realize if you just teach them theology, they're going to be so bored, you're going to lose them. When I was in my early 20s, I realized as much as I love studying the word and theology, if it's not practical, if we don't focus on, that's the key here, focus on application, there is no reason for me to get into the word. Now, did you hear what I said? If we do not focus on application and the richness of how this truth can transform me, if I am only satisfied with information and not the transformation, I will soon be forsaking my first love and I will become distracted about ideas and concepts and theology. Now, theology has its place. It's just never our goal. First Peter, Second Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, it says, Add to your faith goodness to goodness knowledge. There is no period in the Greek there. What follows is a number of attributes, the last of which is love. What is your goal? Is it knowledge? Absolutely not. It is not information but transformation that we become more like Jesus in how he loved. And so theology has its place. But for the Ephesians and for the early church, you're, you're talking as they now move into the 200s, they were so preoccupied with defending the faith, as good as that was, that they neglected that singular truth of Jesus being our first love. And I tell you what, this can happen with us. Getting into the word, it can become dry, because we're just getting the information. I am all for reading through the Bible in one year. Kudos to every single one of you who are going to do that this year. I will applaud you. I will honor you. I will say, go for it. But here's my caution. Don't forsake your first love in the process of trying to read so much of the word. Because the danger will be that you spend all of that time simply reading and not meditating. You know what meditating is? Well, Psalm 1. Those who meditate, those, they will meditate, the blessed man will meditate on the word day and night, the law actually, day and night, and he will be like a tree planted by streams of water. Do you want to be planted by a stream of water? Do you want to be constantly nursed? And here's what you've got to do. You have to meditate, not just read. Meditate, think about it. Let the water of the word percolate down into your very soul. And think about what, what God is calling you to do. What God is asking of you, where, where he's wanting you to do, and, and how is he wanting to encourage you through that time in the word. And I'm going to guarantee you this, it will not simply be with information. I grew up in a very traditional church. I'm not going to mention the denomination, it's not important. But I grew up in a very traditional church, and they were very conservative and very Bible-based. 
But there was a deadness there. And it always kind of surprised me. But when I was in, at home, my mom, at, at least my mom, she had a vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ. She was in the word. She loved Jesus. But I grew up in this church, and it was not until I was 14 that God kind of broke through and, and gave me an understanding that, it, that the, the gospel is about Jesus and following him and living for him and not just trying to get everything theologically in place. And God had to change me. And what God did when I was 14, if you'll follow me here, I'm going to light this candle. God lit my candle, lit my lampstand, if you will, I realize lampstand here refers to the whole church, but we are individually like this candle, a lampstand, in which the fire of the Spirit, the flame of God is in us. And I began to, to burn brightly. But here's what I found. As I was trying to really grow in Christ, I did this. I thought, you know what? I really want to know the book of Luke. And so here's what I did. I started to produce a commentary on the book of Luke. I mean, verse by verse. And, and I had pages and pages. I think I made it. The number that sticks in my mind is either chapter 7 or 11. And I can't remember which one. I never finished the book of Luke. Because here's what I found happening. As I would focus on the facts and all of these details, my mistake, and this is called a damper, right? Damper. My mistake is even as I was studying the word, church, that damper came down over my life and was beginning to put the fire of God out. I was getting dry, and I was just saying, God, I'm not excited about sharing my faith as I used to. I'm not passionate in going to Bible study. And God, you, something needs to change here. And so God told me this. He said, Mike, wonderful commentary. Golf, golf clap. I need you to set it aside. Yeah. I need you to walk with me. I need to invite you on this adventure of the Christian life in which you don't just study the word, but you experience the word. And the word became flesh, church. The truth, the reflection. This written book is a reflection of who our God is and Jesus who is God came and he was the true image of God he was the true reflection the logos of God in the flesh we can see how he walked it out words are great but a picture paints a thousand words and Jesus living it out Here's a thousand words. Oh, there's another thousand. There's a thousand words. And, and it drew, and, and Jesus lived out what it meant to be a true follower of God in complete obedience, the Son to the Father. And he painted that picture for us, the Word made flesh. And Jesus invited me, hey, Mike, you need to get rid of this damper. Studying the Word is great, but if you don't do it the right way, if you're focused on information, you need to change. And God helped me do that. And he began to restoke 
that fire. And here's a second thing. We see the problem in Ephesus, and we need to now focus a little bit more. What is our problem? What might it be that we have in our hand? What damper is it that we have that we are using to put out this flame? We talked about information as opposed to transformation. Love must be our goal. 1 Corinthians 8.1 says knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Colossians 3.14, and over all these virtues put on love. Not knowledge, love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Many of us, as we go through life, especially if we're in school, we're listening to the media, we can start adopting, without realizing it, adopting humanistic thinking. You know, humanistic thinking, its focus is me. It's how great I am, my potential, what I can do. God is, I don't need to worry about God. But this is about me. Maybe you've heard this phrase before. Be a better you. <laughs> okay. What is it, Seminole State College? Maybe I shouldn't have said that. Isn't that their motto, be a better you? Or something along those lines? How do you do that? By getting more information. You'll be a better you. No, you won't. Maybe. maybe. Hey, if you're in school, you need to stay in school, okay? I'm not saying that. Don't twist my words on me. All right. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. That's what I did. And I made it big in life. I made a lot of money. Great. How's your family? How's your marriage? How's your walk with Christ? And the focus is me, what I can do. You see, God is here to help us, we think. And we translate that help us to mean serve us. God is here to serve me. He's our Jesus genie, if you will. And if we rub the lamp, we'll get our three self-centered wish, I mean, I mean three prayers. Unfortunately, that is how many of our prayers are. They're very, they're very self-focused. It's all about me. Now, I'm not saying don't pray for yourself. Yeah, you need to do that. You need to see beyond me, church. That's what humanist thinking does. It locks us into me. We think our goal in life is to be happy. So if my marriage doesn't go really well, and I've tried, at least half-heartedly I've tried, what do we do? What is the word? This is what the church is even doing. We just get a divorce. Why? Because we're not compatible. Find that one in scripture. I'm divorcing you because I'm not compatible. Okay? Well, here's my guess. Then who do you think really needs to change? Okay. If you're not compatible, maybe you need to change. I was talking with Sam, and he was reading a book, and, and the whole premise of the book is if you're not compatible, you're set up for success in your marriage. And, and then the reason why they say that is because you learn, you, 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 you rub the rough edges off of one another, if you're teachable anyway, and you grow and you learn, you know, you have these giftings that are very different than mine, and you learn how to work with one another. As, and my wife and I, we, we seem to be polar opposites on so many things. She's very outgoing, and I am really an introvert. I really am. When she's around people, she gets excited and revved up, and it's 11 o'clock. Well, not always, but, you know, she wants to keep talking, and, and I'm like, whoa, I'm fading here. 
Okay, how many of you went to the Christmas party? Do I need to say more? <laughs> you know, oh, my back is hurting. I'm just going to kick back in this recline. I don't even think I finished. I was gone. Okay, it was 10 o'clock. Okay, and I'm sorry if I didn't say goodbye to you, but I was in la-la land. And it, it was true. My back was hurting, just saying. But, man, I, people don't energize me. Relating with people takes energy on my part, and eventually my energy gets tapped out from my wife. Man, it stokes her flames, and come on, let's just talk some more. Talk some more. When she wakes up in the morning, it's like, who can I talk with this morning? And I'm like, oh, whoa, I haven't even finished my first cup yet. (laughs) We're polar opposites, and it's not just that. It's the way we think, and there are some times in which I just thought, what? What do you mean you you see this? This is a great business idea. I don't know, Michael. I I just really feel... I feel uncomfortable with it. Well, just tell me what exactly, I don't know. I don't know. I just don't feel comfortable with it. Okay, well, if you can't tell me what it is, I'm moving ahead. Mistake. Mistake. And she has pointed out a couple of times in which she just, I don't know, I just don't feel comfortable with it. And I said, well, sweetie, that we're moving ahead. And I did that, and man, I fell flat on my face. My wife, she sensed something. She felt something. There was just something not right about this situation. We call it intuition. And it's real, and maybe if she were to analyze it, that's what I tend to do. That's just not how she's wired. She might be able to fine-tune it and say, okay, it's when he said this one word, it revealed to me his real heart. And if she were able to say that, I would probably back up with, I think you're judging I think, I'm not sure that's fair, but she sees it and she understands. Now, there are some shows that are built on this idea. Something's out of place, but they're able to find what it is. Like, I think the mentalists, I think they do this. But the truth is, my wife and I are polar opposites, which I personally believe sets us up for success. A lot of times I haven't allowed for that. But... What this does, getting back to my original point, when we're not happy, even in the the divorce rate in the church, are you aware of this? The divorce rate in the church is what it is out in the world. And actually, I don't know if this is true. I have read it. But the divorce, listen to this, the divorce rate in the church is actually higher than it is among atheists. Wow. No way. I don't know, maybe atheists are just very intellectual types of people, wrong information, they believe the wrong things, granted, but maybe they're just not as emotional as some of us that get, we're always looking, I want to be happy, I have the right to be, they believe, I have the right to be happy, this is humanist thinking. It is all about me. There's an overemphasis on us being significant and having purpose and doing great things for God. But there's in this undercurrent, it is all about me. I'm all about purpose, all about God's divine destiny. Read the very last chapter in the book back there, The Making of Real Men. It's about finding your divine identity, but it is all about God. It's about God empowering you and us yielding to him. And that's what humanism, that's what humanistic thinking sets aside. But when we do this, here's my point. When we do this, when we get caught up in this worldly thinking, it starts putting out this flame. It's all about me. It's about what I do. It's about how much money I make. And it's all about the stuff. And it's about my happiness. And it's, you know, it's about what I accomplish in life and what I can do. And, and oh, yeah, God, you're in the picture there, too. 
somewhere. And we have left God behind, whatever that means. And we have forsaken our first love. Trials. Trials can harden us. Trials can distract us. Trials can make us weary. Now, for the Ephesians, it didn't. Do you see that? They were in the midst of hardships. How many of you, by the way, let me just say this. How many of you have ever encountered a hardship and it really discouraged you and it really, you were holding in one hand this damper, okay? Raise your hand. You can raise your hand on this, like almost all of us. And we go through those trials and we start getting angry with God or feeling hurt or pity parties. And before we know it, we're dampening that flame. Now, the Ephesians didn't even do that. But here's why I'm so cursed. They had kind of found this groove of duty. Now, duty is a good thing. Being faithful, that is, a, that is a Christ-like character. But if you are only following Jesus because you want to be faithful, because you want to be dutiful, that is not sufficient. It's not. You are going to get burned out. You will. The Ephesians were being commended. They were faithful. They were dutiful, but they had left their first love. Can I ask you? Are you going through hardships with a stiff upper lip? I'm, I'm going to endure this. Yeah, yes, I will. I'm going to keep following you, Jesus. Do you remember what James Chapter 1, verse 2 says, consider it mixed joy whenever you face trials of many. Isn't that what your version says? No? What? What does it say? Consider it pure joy, all joy. Wow. Wow. Consider it pure, undiluted, genuine, real joy. Whenever you face trials of many kinds. It's easy for us to have a complainy spirit and then, oh, yeah, okay, God, but yeah, that's right. I'm supposed to thank you. And, but you know what, God, it's really hard here. And, I, you know, why are you doing this? And you know what, God, have you just forsaken me? And we get all, you know, pity party-ish. And, oh, yeah, 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 but I do love you. And we give lip service to this sometimes because, you know what, that's what good Christians are supposed to say. But that's not what good Christians, that's not what those who are passionately following Christ say or do. They consider it pure, undiluted, genuine joy, thoroughly. Nothing mixed here. And I want to tell you that that is not easy. And I found the only way to do it is by making Jesus your first love. It's going back and saying, Jesus, I'm going to confess I don't understand. But guess what? I'm surrendering my right to understand the why of things. And I'm going to encourage you, pray and pray hard during those trials, but yield that right to fully understand the why to God. I've heard the illustration that God is in the process of building this incredibly beautiful tapestry, and each of you are that tapestry, and God is looking at this tapestry and saying, man, that looks awesome. And we see the underside. How many of you have ever seen the underside of a tapestry? Four letters come to my mind. U-G-L-Y. Ugly. It's really ugly. 
How many of you would have ever displayed a tapestry on your wall showing the backside? Not. Of course you're not. Of course you would never do that because why? It's ugly. That's right. But that's what we see in our life. We get to see the ugly. And we look at our life and we're just saying, God, really, again? And we pick up our damper and we start doing this. I'm not sure I trust you today, God. I'm not sure I really like what you're doing in my life. I'm not sure it's really going to work out for my best. I'm not sure that you are for me and have my best interests at heart. Some of us, we get angry. Now, granted, the Ephesians hung in there, but it's only because they did it out of duty because, well, this is what a good Christian should do. What is, what is Paul? I, I'm, I'm skipping some stuff here. What, excuse me, what does Jesus tell the Ephesians that they should do? Point number three, we need to allow God to reignite the flame. Reignite the flame. He tells us to do th two things. Repent and look and, and do the things you did at first. Repent means to change your mind. Change your stinking thinking, as they say. We need to allow God to do something in us, to put first things first, to allow the, get the first button right. You ever get the first button wrong and the whole button-down shirt is cockeyed? There's only one way to do it, and that is get the first button right. Everything else will follow. Make sure you get that first button right, your first love, that relationship with Jesus. Everything flows from it. And, I, and I'm probably going to have to cut this message short and kind of move it into some of the other sermons in this series. But the way to make sure that your first love stays your first love is found in 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. Jesus gave everything for you. And the more that you are able to see how deeply he loves you, the more you respond in like kind and say, I will follow you. In view of his mercies, present yourselves as living sacrifices. In view of his mercy and his grace and his love, I want to follow you, Jesus. I can remember my, our first Christmas, Meredith gave me a blanket. Now, for some of you, you might think, it's not really too masculine. And it was a big blanket. It was for our bed. And I appreciated it, but then she began to tell me, yeah, Beezy and I worked on this the entire past year. And every time I was over, we would spend hours on this blanket. Here's what I heard. Mike, I love you so much. I gave all of this time in my life this past year for you. And I remember when she told me that story and I was looking at the blanket and it was beautiful. We still have that blanket to this day. I thought, man, I married a woman who loves me so much. And I began to get teary up and I, I think I covered it up well enough so she didn't see it. But it began to really impact me. Trish, you realize what Jesus has done for you, the sacrifice of his own life, God laid down his own life for you. 
you deserved, I deserved total separation from him. We were in rebellion against him. It may not have felt that way to you, but that is what sin is, is it not? It's rebellion against God, and we have turned our back on him. And Jesus pursued us, and he left us just saying, I love you. I want you to be my very own possession. And the Bible says that Jesus bought you. He purchased you. He redeemed you. That is love. That's love. And then lastly, and I'm going to get into this more in another sermon, but we are told to repent. Do the things you did at first. Can I ask you this? When you first gave your heart to Christ, what did you do? What did you do? I bet you you started reading the word, and it was like everything in it was, man, this is awesome. I remember because Meredith and I were, were with one another so much in, in those, when she was at college, and we were, we were talking about ministry, and she would say, oh, Michael, let me tell you what Jesus taught me in my quiet time this morning. And it was all about the word and it, making it alive. And I loved those times in which she would share that with me. And, and she would, it's not that she doesn't do that anymore, but she would, she would share these things. And, oh, Michael, listen, here's what Jesus taught me today. And there was an excitement. I remember we evangelized so much, and it's not that we don't do that anymore. But can I ask you this? Where is your first love? Where is it? Has the enemy been dousing? Those flames, what were those things you did at first? Prayer was not a duty, was it? You realized so fully your sins and how much God had loved you and washed them away when you prayed. It was like you were touching the heart of God. Do the things you did at first. Today, I believe God wants to throw a Christmas tree on your fire. I believe God wants to take from your hand this damper and say, throw it aside. Sorry, that was, that, that's my wife's. <laughs> throw it aside. Get rid of it. Stop putting the fire of God out in your life. Stop pointing the finger at other people. Well, it's her fault. It's, it's my husband's fault. It's my wife's fault. It's my kid's fault. It's the dog's fault. I mean, come on. Where do we stop? It's, it's always somebody else's fault. And God is saying, you know what? You're the one. With the damper in your hand, throw it aside. Don't let the devil douse your flames. Go back to the cross and let Jesus capture your heart. Can you stand with me right now? Some of you are being troopers and you're going through hardships well. I just need to ask you, you seem to be doing well. But is Jesus still your first love? Or has the enemy come out in these trials and turned your heart cold? Kudos to you for persevering he saved your first love. Jesus, I, I am asking you, God, you be the one. No guilt trips here. 
God, you be the one to very gently and very graciously show us, do we still have the day of ruin ahead of us? When we go to the word, is it rich? When we seek you in prayer and in worship, do we connect? Or is there a disconnect on a regular basis? Do I go through the duties in my life with a stiff upper lip? Or truth be told, there's little to no passion. Father, I am asking that you speak truth to us, that you give us a vision again of the cross and of how Christ laid down everything, paid the highest price for me to rescue me, to rescue us. So I'm asking you, Lord, capture our hearts again. Make Jesus our first love. Let this love that we have amongst ourselves be reignited. But it starts with you, Jesus. Would you help us? Would you take us by the hand and lead us into this coming year absolutely ignited with a love and a passion and a zeal that does not go out for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. May God bless you guys. Have an absolutely awesome week. Don't forget, 2 o'clock over at the uh, Nolets, we are having a birthday party for Jim. God bless you guys. Love you.